Over the next month, members of fellowship will have the opportunity to nominate new elders to the elder board. In our church governance structure, the elder board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of our body. We are not a church with elders. We are a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. Here is what we are asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Second, if you do have a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Please read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. If you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick up one at the information desk in the worship center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the qualifications of an elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 11th. Please pray for your elders as we initiate the process of recognizing new elders. Finally, we thank Scott Thompson and Roger Hill for their years of faithful service as elders. They have represented you and the Lord well during their tenure. When you see them, please thank these gentlemen for their faithful service. On another note, a few of the buildings on our Rogers campus need some attention. The Family Center was completed in 1991. The Worship Center and Foyer were completed in 1999. That's a quarter of a century. The elders have approved moving forward with much needed improvements to those buildings. The cost is estimated to be approximately $4.5 million. We don't want to go into debt for this project and we have proven on initiatives of much larger scale that we can get this done if all our congregations work together. My wife Denise and I will be setting up monthly recurring gifts to do our part and I hope you will too. No gift is too large or too small. And remember, it's not about equal giving, but equal sacrifice. On the giving page of our website, you will find capital improvements. You can make a contribution there or set up recurring gifts. We already have $1.3 million in donations, so we are well on our way. God continues to do great things through Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas. Thank you for playing an active role in this great ministry. God bless you, everyone. Well, good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. How we doing? All right, my name is Ryan. This is Joanna. This is Olivia next to me here. We're excited to sing some songs with you all this morning. We hope you had a really great Thanksgiving. Uh, you can see we've got Christmas trees up. Advent is upon us. It actually starts next week on December 3rd is the official start of the Advent season. But tonight, we went, ahead, we went ahead and decorated everything because tonight we have our family Advent service from 6 to 7 p.m. So your whole family is welcome. Our Fayette Kids team partners with other churches in the area and we meet here in this room and we're gonna kick off this Advent season with a celebration. So bring your kids, eat some dinner and then come up here 
Um, and this has been a great rhythm for my family and I. So we're excited for it tonight. So we hope to see you there. Church, we're going to sing songs about the goodness of God, about how our worth is not in anything that we have, but in Christ and in Christ alone. And that's really good news for us. So church, together, let's stand and let's sing this morning. My worth and my unworthiness 
you fixed my ransom pain at the cross and I rejoice in my Redeemer greatest treasure wellspring of my soul and I will trust in him no soul is satisfied in him alone in him alone amen church you can have a seat stories in Mark 2 is Jesus healing the paralytic. As the friends are lowering the paralyzed man down in front of Jesus, they too are in front of Jesus. And so to me, it's this mutual relationship that as you think you are serving people with disabilities, you in return are becoming closer to Jesus. Hi, I'm Michaela Atkinson and I'm a recess volunteer. Recess is happens for us on a Friday night. Um, and families get to come and drop off their kids with disabilities and their siblings and get to have a night away um, to choose to do whatever they want. Some parents will go grocery shopping, some parents will go on a date, some parents will just sleep. And then inside the doors is where the fun really happens. Um, kids with disabilities are paired one-to-one -one with a buddy and their siblings are either paired one-to-one -one or with um, a group of siblings, but the night is really catered to them. So there's games, there's toys, there's movies, um, and they get to just do whatever they want, and the night is for them. So whether they prefer to play all night, their buddy will do that, or they want to sit and talk about football, that's what they get to do. The night is completely catered um, to them, and a volunteer basically just saying yes to whatever they want. There is a family that has, um, the oldest son has disabilities, and they have four or five other kids in their house. And every Friday when they would come to recess, kids with disabilities would get to go play and be one-to-one -one with their buddy, but the siblings in particular would get time just to them and they would have intentional time with volunteers that would ask them questions, whether it was hard, whether it was fun questions about what was happening in school or, or whether it was them processing what it looks like to be a sibling of someone who has disabilities. They knew that that night was spe specifically for them and it was they were given the chance to just be themselves without having to worry about their sibling. I think that this just explains how much our families look forward to recess. So one of our families, um, it was fall break and they got to go to Silver Dollar City. Instead of wanting to stay at Silver, Silver Dollar City for the night, they begged, the kids begged to come back home and go to recess instead of staying at Silver Dollar City. And to me that just shares 
how much kids look forward to this night, how it rivals Silver Dollar City, that he wanted to come back because he knew it was gonna be a night for him and it was a night that he looks forward to every month. To me, it's important because it's not just a service opportunity, it is a way to experience God's creativity, His uniqueness, and His beauty and how He's created His children. Good morning. My name is Becky, and I lead Enable, our disability ministry here at Fellowship. And you all just got a glimpse of one of my favorite nights of the month, Recess. Um, Recess is a partnership with 99 Balloons. 99 Balloons is a local nonprofit here in the area that serves families with disabilities. And Recess is a special night for me for a lot of reasons. But one of those reasons is because my story with disability really began at Recess. 16 years ago, the first Recess launched, and I was a volunteer. I had very little experience with um, disabilities up to that point, but I was there. And month after month, as I got to know the kids and the families and the volunteers, I started realizing something. And it's a simple realization, but it was profound for me. And that realization was that kids are all just kids. They all want the same things. It doesn't matter their abilities or their disabilities. Kids want to know that they are known. They want to know that they're loved. They want to laugh. They want to have fun. And they want a place to belong. And that's what recess is. It's a place where people with all different abilities come together and find community. Um, and we play. And we have fun. And it is like I said, one of my families, my kids, we all go. It is a fun night for us. And I'd like to tell you a couple ways you all could help us. We um, provide a meal for all the volunteers who come to serve. Before the kids arrive, we feed the people. And so we would love if you or your community group would like to provide us with a meal. We would appreciate that so much. Um, my email will be up, it's up there. You can um, email me, and I will give you details about what all that entails. We come together before the kids arrive, we eat, we talk about the night, we plan, and then we go out and we have fun. Um, the second way you can help is that we need some volunteers. I have three families that have contacted me and would like to start attending recess, but I can't invite them until I know we have the volunteer support to be able to allow them to safely attend. So if this is something you'd be interested in doing, you can also email me. I promise I'll train you, I'll equip you, I'll have everything you need so that you can succeed and come have a great night with us um, at recess. Another thing my family um, loves to do is this season is Advent. And as Burton mentioned, we have an Advent service coming tonight, and we would love for y'all all to be here. You don't have to have kids to come. You can come, anyone, bring a neighbor, bring your friends. Like we said, there'll be other churches here. And so it's a great night to just fill this room as we begin our season of worship for the Advent season. We also have new Advent books right here. They're out in the foyer. They're at check-in booths where um, the kids are. Grab one of these. This has become a part of our family also. Before we go to bed, we flip open the book and we read together. And I find myself thinking through the questions long after the kids have gone to bed. So these are out there. Make sure you pick one of these up before you leave. 
we will continue our morning of worship here this morning. Hey, thank you, Becky. Can we give her and her team a big round of applause? Man, they're awesome. And she works really, really hard. We're very thankful for you, Becky. Uh, church, let's, let's engage in a time of, uh, of prayer, of reflection, and in corporate confession with each other this morning as we remember our need for a Savior. Let's say this together. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. And so a lot of times in, in weeks like this, I'm sure a lot of you had, had a little bit of time off of work and a time with hopefully with some, some family a little bit more, but it, it takes us out of our rhythm. And I know for me, when I get pulled out of my rhythm, then I start doing a little bit more thinking. And in this week in particular can reflect more on my need for a savior. And I'm, I'm reminded very quickly when I'm at home with, with two little kids that I'm a sinful, broken man. And, and that was the case this week. And so saying that confession, confessing those things in prayer is good for our souls to remember that together as a church body. But it's also really good for us to remember the second part of this, that our assurance of pardon comes in Christ. And so even though we're fallen, broken, in need of a Savior, we have that Savior in Jesus Christ if we believe in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so church, let's stand together and let's proclaim this good news, that Jesus died for us, Jesus rose for us, Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we're gonna remember that in song that we have nothing without him, but in him, we have everything. Amen. Let's sing together. And take these hands and lift them up. I have not the strength to praise you near enough. See, I have nothing. I have nothing without you. And take my voice and pour it out. Let it sing the songs of mercy I have found. For I have nothing, I have nothing without you. And all my soul that needs is all yours.
remain standing as we hear this uh, final part of the letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. Paul writes this, he writes, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Now that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment. Uh, I have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How are we this morning? Good? Decent enough? Uh, my name is Garland. Glad to uh, be with you as we close down this, uh, this letter that... Uh, 
An early church leader back in the mid-50s AD wrote to this church in what we now call Greece. Uh, It's a city called Philippi. Just because uh, I do this every year, I I wanted to continue it this year. Every year at Thanksgiving week, I'm really curious, and I look up what Google at least says. Now, there's different ways they tally this, and I have no idea how they arrive at this kind of data. But nevertheless, I I Googled it again this, this particular week, and on Google at least, this is what it says is the most important or most number one, we might say, side dish per state in America. So I'm just curious if this checks out. It gave, again, I have no idea how they're getting this data, uh, where it's coming from, but they gave Arkansas here, we're in the stuffing dressing category. How many of you had stuffing or dressing this week? So that mostly checks out. The, uh, the yellowish tan, that's like Texas and all the western states, that's mashed potatoes. Um, things that I found to be unusual or that stood out to me this time around. How about Virginia with salad? Checks out. Um, And the one that I am most concerned with, I guess, is the red. So California, Arizona, and New York. And it says that is root vegetable dish. What the heck is that? What is root vegetable dish? And whatever it is, it sounds terrible. Like, Like it's no wonder people are leaving the coasts to move to the South, because look at that. Nobody wants root vegetable dish as the number one side dish. Um, if with that in mind, just turn to your neighbor and that's gonna ask you, what is your favorite? I want you to answer this question to your neighbor. If you don't know that person, introduce yourself. Uh, what's your favorite Thanksgiving side dish? You got 30 seconds, go. All right, all right. Any root vegetable dish out there? Root vegetable dish? What, I don't know what it is. You got to help, help me. All right, that has nothing to do with the sermon at all. Um, so this morning, we're going to be looking at this final passage, this final little section, and it's, it's loaded. I mean, it's, it's really profound what we're going to get to look at this morning. Uh, whether you're a Jesus follower in the room or maybe not, uh, it's incredibly profound what Paul says. And here's the reality. As we look at this passage um, this morning, and when I look at what it says, and then I look at my life, there's a dissonance there. Like when I see what Paul is saying, what he's articulating, and I look at my life, my, my heart, my wants, my life, what I do, there's a gap there. And so I'm just gonna fully acknowledge that this is something that I, I am in real time aiming to take to heart, like aiming to say, Paul, I really trust you. I believe that you're right here, but I don't think I got this one figured out. And with that in mind, like, I don't feel like I have a word to say on this topic, really, to look at my life, but the scriptures do. The scriptures do this morning. And so I, I like for us to look at this passage. Now, just to give us some context as we move into looking at it, as we... As, as we look at the letter to the Philippians, Paul has a couple things that he's addressing when he writes this letter. There's a couple of urgent needs. One is there's a disunity in the church that he wants to address, and we've seen that over and over again if we've studied this letter, and he points them to be together in a bunch of different ways. 
Now, the second big thing, and we actually see this in the beginning, chapter 1, 1 to 11, and here at the end, um, this is the other big occasion for the letter. Paul has to say thank you. He needs to address the gift. Notice all the language. You renewed your concern. You shared with me. I've received everything you sent from Epaphroditus, the gifts. Paul is in prison as he writes this letter. In Roman prison, you didn't, they weren't taking care of you in there. Your needs were met by people meeting them from the outside. And Paul says, this church, the Philippian church, they have met this need in sending Epaphroditus. Now, in the ancient world, the Roman world, gift giving is a little bit different than how we do it. Um, in the Roman world, gift giving was a little more nuanced. There's a lot more going on. It's how you build social bonds. Um, it's a way that you can establish honor. And gift giving comes in the ancient Roman world with a necessary expectation that you're gonna, uh, you're gonna, we're going to get reciprocity on this gift. You're going to give me a gift in return. Paul's in prison. He can't give him a gift. So what does he suggest? What does he tell them? What does he offer in return? Well, he's going to give them something even, even more important, even more significant. He says, I've learned the secret to finding contentment. I've learned something radically profound, Philippian church and fellowship. If you can get this, it might set you free. That's really where Paul is going to take us this morning. He's offering us contentment for today. And as we look at the passage, here's going to be sort of our, our, our rough outline of where we're going to go. As we think about the idea of contentment for today, we're going to see its importance. Paul's going to mo- make mention of its rivals. He's being very uh, tongue-in-cheek as he writes this section, we might say. He's going to want us to check our priorities. We have to see the, the, our priorities And then we're going to see its result and its source. So contentment for today, its importance, its rivals, its priorities, its result, and its source. That's where we're going. If you have your Bibles, if you hadn't turned already, go with me. Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, go there, Google it, open up uh, the Bible app, whatever you got. I want you to have eyes on it as we look at it here this morning. Now, the importance, contentment for today. Notice what Paul says. Um, the NIV is translating both of these as with the word content. Go ahead, if you, have, if you have NIV, go ahead and mark that in your book. Mark that. I've learned to be content. I've learned the secret of being content. This is the topic that he's addressing. Now, this discussion did not come out of nowhere. We might say this is part two of what he began to talk about last week, part one. If you were here last week, Clark did an awesome job, I think, helping us understand what it looks like to have the peace of God and to be set free from anxiety. This is continuing that same idea. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to Clark's talk from last week. It was really helpful. This is part one last week, part two this week. And as he continues that, he begins to talk about this concept of peace with God or contentment today. Now, what do I mean by the importance? I would suggest to you that at the core of what you are chasing in life, what you're really after in life. By the way, Jesus follower in this room or not, what you're actually after is what Paul is talking about today, every single one of us, whether you know it or not. When we talk about contentment, like what what is this thing, contentment? I think for us in the modern world, we would define that oftentimes something like it's a feeling of having enough or a feeling, an internal feeling of feeling satisfied or something like that. That's certainly part of it. But think about it. We all know that experience. Maybe, maybe you've had one recently. That 
day or that couple days, that few hours in the day where things just were clicking, where you felt like as you looked at the, the tasks for that day for you, you, you had enough. You felt adequate to it. What you were doing felt significant. What you were doing felt like it mattered. What, what you had in your life it seemed like enough. Now, the question for you and for me is, when you have those feelings, those experiences, when you have that moment where things seem to be clicking, how long does it last? It's incredibly fleeting, is it not? So often, that, that experience that we have, it just seems like it's a whisper and then it's gone. It's really easy to illustrate contentment or lack thereof when we talk about stuff. And it's really easy to do that when we talk about stuff, when we think back to when we were kids or when we think about our own kids, if you have kids in the room. Like, let me give you an easy example, okay? There was a time in my life where there was this thing that I knew that if I had that, it would make me uh, equal with my peers, it would bring me lasting joy and lasting satisfaction. That thing that I desperately wanted was a Sega Genesis. Sega Genesis players in the room? It, not only the Sega, it had the greatest arcade game that had been converted to this little console, and I could play it on my 18-inch TV. And we got one. And I had satisfaction. I had joy. How long did it last? Eventually, the Sega was not as exciting. And here's the worst part. New things came along that made the Sega seem suddenly not so cool. Like the thing like the Nintendo 64. And guess what? We got one. And GoldenEye, the greatest game of all time. And I had satisfaction. But it didn't last that long because out came the Xbox. And then now whatever it is now, I don't even know what it is now. Now, it's silly, right? We can see this with our own kids. Like you buy your kids toys and like literally three months later, you're throwing them in the trash. You're going, what is up with this? You, you rip those presents open at Christmas. This is the best thing ever. Sometimes you don't even make it home with it from Christmas. You don't even make it into the closet before you're like, they don't even care about that anymore. It's easy and it's silly when we look at it with, you know, the Sega Genesis from the early 90s. But isn't this all of us? As silly as it is, isn't this all of us? We're looking to that next vacation that next great meal, that next, that next great love, that next great uh, promotion, that next, uh, that next trip that we get to go on, that next project, uh, that next season of life where we're finally out of this one, that next purchase, that next experience. Mark Twain, I think, said it really well. Just hear him. He says, you do not know quite what it is you do want but it fairly makes your heart ache you want it so. Is that not us? If we're being honest in this room, deep down, what each, we're, all, we're all after something. And Paul says, man, I've, I've found something that can let you be done with the race. I've found something that you go, no more chasing, no more seeking. Satisfaction can be yours. And it, like today, if we listen to Paul. That thing that your, heart, that your heart longs for, aches for, Paul would say, it's yours today. Now, what do I mean by the rivals? 
Paul's going to give us an idea. He's going he's to throw some shade as he writes this at some of the other conceptions of how to find contentment in the ancient world. And what we have to do is we have to recognize that when Paul talks about these other ways of contentment, we have to see them in the ancient world and then also see their counterpart in the modern world. Then we can see what Paul is offering and why it's so uniquely different. What do I mean by the rivals? Where am I getting this in the text? Look at the passage. This word that's being translated for us, content. Now, I changed from the NIV to the NASB um, because the NIV is carrying the word content in both passages or in verse uh, 11 and 12. In verse 11, he says, I, I've learned to be content. The Greek word is out our case. Autos means self, and arche means um, ruler or dominion or sufficiency, something like that. So it's a word that philosophers, and it's a word that, uh, that great thinkers in the academic world are talking about. It's a buzzword culturally. People are seeking out our case. And in the ancient Roman, Greco-Roman world, what that looks like is a self-rule, a self-mastery, a self-sufficiency, where the circumstances of life don't bother you anymore. You can internally have enough and look around and go, I'm not I'm, not, I'm now immune to these things, good or bad around me. The second word that's being translated, I've learned the secret. This is literally a technical word that the, the thinkers and the writers and the philosophers are using. It's the only time in the New Testament this word is used. Paul is being very, very intentional with these words that he's using. Most commentators and most scholars recognize this. Now, what is he throwing shade at? What are the rivals let me give you three in the ancient Roman world. Now, if you're, if you're a philosophy major in the room or philosophy nerd or something like that, uh, I recognize when you, when you summarize something in a short little statement, you're gonna miss some stuff. You're gonna miss all the nuance, okay? So I get it. Um, if you wanna talk later, come find me. We'll talk about it. Um, let me give you three. Here is what Stoicism sounds like, ancient Stoicism. This is one of the branches of ancient Greco-Roman philosophy. And Paul is using terms that the Stoics were using. Here's how it sounds. You go to what's above to detach from what's below. How do you get contentment in Stoicism? You recognize that your life is faded. You recognize that things are determined for you. And then you accept that. You fix your mind on the great idea of God and the, the truths that are real and are not going to be transient and all these temporary things down here. Even the good ones, by the way, family and friends, don't get too attached to them because they're going to break your heart. Go to what's above to detach from what's below, and you can find contentment. But it'll be a stoic, we literally use the word now, stoic contentment, a detached, cold, passionless sort of contentment. Its opposite would be something that we would call Epicureanism. Epicureanism is essentially the opposite. You have to go to what's below to detach from what's above. You see, we can't know if things are determined. We can't know anything about God. We don't know if there, if there is a God, what he's like. If he is, it's too far away. So what should I do? Try to maximize the good and minimize the bad in life. Try to have as much pleasure and comfort as you can get. Don't go crazy, but have as much as you can and minimize the bad stuff. Sounds American, right? The third 
is called cynicism. Don't think cynic how we use the term. It's a, another one of these branches we might say. Here's our, our little summary. I, I, might, I might use it like this. Go to what's inside to detach from what's above and below. We can't know what's above. And by the way, all these, all these cultural pressures from below, they're, they're forcing you to be somebody that you're not. So go rid yourself from all that. Sell all that you have and go and find yourself out in nature by yourself. Go inside. Now, Paul's going to say none of these work. And he's throwing some serious shade on these ideas of contentment. He's going to give us a different picture. Now, this is what, this is what people in the, in the academy, if they had magazines, this is what they'd be writing about. If they had newspapers, they had uh, you know, opinion writers, they're going to be writing from these perspectives in the, in the papers, in the journals. Now, what does that sound like today? Let me give you a, some, a, 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 maybe a counterpoint to that today or, or a, a parallel to today. Stoicism. It, it sounds like this mantra. Maybe, maybe some of you in this room, you're chasing this kind of a contentment. It's not a gospel contentment. It's a stoic form of contentment. Maybe you were raised by somebody that was chasing this kind of contentment or had a grandparent that was chasing this kind of contentment. You just got to... Grin and bear it. Accept your lot in life. You can't change it. Accept it. The faster you accept it, the sooner you can be happy. And we know those people. Maybe you're one of them in the room. And you try to stay distant and cool from anything that might pull your heart. Stay detached. And sure, you may have some contentment, but it's a cold contentment. It's unmoved towards the brokenness around you. Just don't get involved. Accept it. There's no joy in it. Epicureanism literally is modern Western culture, modern American culture. We might say it like this, don't worry, be happy. Think about our American culture. Try to maximize as much pleasure, comfort, material goods as you can get. Don't go crazy. And try to distance yourself from pain, suffering, and death as much as you can. Don't worry, be happy, America. Now, it's a contentment, but it's a contentment essentially 100% tethered to circumstances. And by the way, when you cry out for the grand questions in life, which we all do, is there meaning to my life? Is there beauty in this world? Is there meaning to my suffering? When you cry out for answers, if this is your form of contentment, you will get nothing but silence in return, which will make you even less content. Cynic. It's a postmodern America. It's millennial and Gen Z, my generation and down. It sounds like Elsa from Frozen. You've seen the movie. Elsa has all these social constraints on her from Arendelle, who she's supposed to be, and it's ruining her heart. So what's she do? She runs away, and she makes this statement. There's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free let it go. You want to sing it, don't you? Now, it's a great song. I like the song. It gets in your head. But it's giving us a picture of, of what we might say cynic contentment. And here's where this one fails. Your contentment is only as deep as your feeling of contentment. If you're talking to yourself and saying, be content, be content, be content. And if you've seen the movie, she's still not happy out there. They don't work. These are 
ancient rivals. And Paul is being very intentional with his language here and saying, yeah, 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 you think you know the secret? You don't have the secret. You've got something way more profound and way better. Now, what do I mean by its priorities? We're not going to like this part. All throughout this letter, I think Paul would advise you and I to check our priorities. We might say it this way, to recognize the difference between dessert and meal. Know the difference between dessert and meal. Pecan pie. Who had some pecan pie this week? How about pumpkin pie? Dutch apple pie? Apple pie? Uh, What am I missing? Chocolate pie of some kind? Lemon pie of some kind? What am I missing? Oh, cakes. All the various kinds of cake people? How many of you don't like pie? What is wrong with you? It's amazing. Um, I had four slices of pie at lunch, just at lunch. Full slices of pie at lunch. It was amazing. I was very, I was very happy um, to do that. We have to know the difference between dessert and meal. Pie makes an amazing dessert. And I can have four slices of pie, you know, maybe a couple days a year, like Thursday and Friday and Saturday this week. Um, <laughs> But imagine if that became meal, diet, you, you, you would die quickly. Like, you can't make it that way. Paul wants us to know the difference between dessert and meal. Uh, let me show you. Notice what he says. I know what it is to be in need and have plenty, well-fed or hungry, plenty or want. Now, don't miss the pro- how profound this is. It might sound really simple. Having stuff, not having stuff. Paul says, doesn't matter. Notice, he doesn't go, when I get my material needs met, then I'll be content. No, nor does he idolize some kind of poverty state, as if that's the secret. Neither. A secret that can lift you above either one of these. Hungry, well-fed. Plenty or want. I think Paul would tell us, that's not where the stuff of life is found. When you have it, dessert. Healthy kids, dessert. Job success, dessert. Um, Promotion, great friendships, new house, dessert. Don't let it become meal. Later on, he'll say, you've sent me the gift, and I thank you for the gift. But look at verse 17, he goes, but it's not what I'm actually after. Not that I desire your gifts, but I desire something greater. I think Paul, if he were here, would tell us, if you really want to have the kind of contentment that I'm talking about, let's talk about your priorities. Let's talk about what you build your life on. Now, Clark gave us some practical things to do last week. I'm going to do the same thing this week. And I have not enjoyed this personally. I'm just going to ask you this week to get a piece of paper or a journal, whatever that looks like for you, and just write, you know, money, stuff, whatever that looks like, time and attention. And then look at a month. If you need to, with money, for example, go back and look at, you know, expenditures for a month. Look at your calendar for the last month. And if, if you're a, if you want to do by quarter or by semester, that's great too, whatever. But to do the work of going in and looking into our lives and into our hearts and into our souls, into what we do. And I'm just gonna ask, what would these reveal 
about your priorities or my priorities. If you did the work, what would it reveal about our priorities? Maybe a second question in there would be, where does Jesus and his kingdom slot in to your priorities, my priorities? I haven't liked my answers, and I work at a church. By the way, I'm not trying to make us feel guilty by putting money up there. I'm not trying to say, when the church is behind budget, so don't go check your money this last month and give the church some more. By the way, you very well may do that and go, I need to give more because I'm ensnared by money, materialism and stuff. You very well may need to do that. I hope you will. But it's not, the purpose is not to make you feel guilty. I think what Paul would want us to do is to be set free from being owned by our stuff or our money or our account or that next great financial windfall. To say dessert, not meal. Your time. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. My bet would be if every single one of us, it, my hope would be if we listed out just our sheer amount of time, I bet everyone in this room is going to be job. If you're a student, it's going to be school and what is involved with school. If you're a stay-at-home parent, that's your job. Like, it's going to be job, 50, 60 hours this week. And then probably family, if you have a family, or your social friendships and stuff. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for that. What I'm trying, I think what Paul would ask us to do is to recognize that if job or success at the job, the thing we spend 50, 60 hours a week at, if that is our life, if that's the meal, then we will rise and fall in the next great win. We will be crushed when we don't land the next client or crushed when you don't get that promotion that you sought or crushed when uh, the next recession hits. If we elevate it from dessert to meal, our priorities will get out of whack. I think what Paul would help us to, what would want us to see that the thing we spend 50, 60 hours a week on, how can we through that bring God's goodness into our world, even at your job, and make him first, even there while you work hard at whatever company it is that you work, or the school that you teach at, or in your classroom setting, whatever it is. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you spend five, six nights a week taking your kids to different activities and 20 weekends a year traveling to take them to things. Now, I'm not saying kill the sports and have Bible studies every night for three hours with your kids. Although, by the way, you may need to have conversations about activities. But if your kids are a way that you can bring God's goodness into the world, but not your life, then you'll be able to cherish them and love them and even drive them to all the things. But if your kids are your life, if they're the meal, then you will put outrageous expectations on them and you will rise and fall based on their success. You will. I think Paul would say, you've got to check it. Check your priorities, your attention. I'll, pay, I'll make it even, this is the one I've not liked especially. What do you do when you, with your idle time? What do you do when you get bored? What do you do with your screens? By the way, your phone can tell you, most of you. It might be worth a check. What is your attention given to? And if you check on your phone and it's um, four hours a day to uh, 
YouTube and it's lots of videos about that are angry about the state of things in the world and angry about what's going on politically, I wouldn't expect you to have a lot of contentment. If you are searching constantly through Instagram or through TikTok or through Snapchat, constantly comparing and uh, lusting and looking at things they have that you want, I don't expect you to have contentment. Clark said it last week. If we chase what the world is offering, we're not going to have the peace of God. I'm asking you and me to do some of the work this week to look at our priorities, because look at what Paul would say. I say, Paul, what is it then? What is the priority for you? Look at what he says. He goes, you know what my life is? You know what I build my life on? Christ. He has this kind of a buoyancy to say, they can let me out, fruitful labor. They can keep me in jail, more ministry. They can kill me, gain. He didn't just wake up that way. He didn't just hope to feel it. Everything was reset for him and his priority became Jesus. And you can see that story in Acts chapter nine. Jesus said it to us. Check your treasure. Check your treasure. Because where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. But seek first God's kingdom and then everything will slot. Enjoy the dessert. But what's the meal? It's importance. It's rivals, it's priorities, it's result. I think we all see this and go, wow. To be content in any and every situation. Paul was not an alien. He's not a mutant. He's not Superman. I think he, he would look at all this and go, I'm, I'm just like you. I'm a regular person just like you. But I found something. I can lay everything else down. Now, what is the source? What's the secret? I've I've hidden this away on purpose for many of us in the room. Here's why. Look at what he says, and and here's why I hid it away. He says, verse 13, I've learned the secret of being content. I hid it away, verse 13. This verse is not about bench pressing. It's not about winning football games. It is not about... uh, Go into the gym and getting in better shape and finishing the workout, okay? This verse has been hijacked and made into a football verse, and I've always wondered what happens when two people on the opposite teams both come at each other and both are going, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things, and they both have it on their eye black. Now what? I don't know what happens then. It's not about that. I want you to see I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in what want. I can do all of this in him. Literally in the Greek, it says, in the one strengthening me, in him. I'm gonna challenge you to go back this week and just underline or box every time Paul says in him or in Christ in Philippians. It's gonna be a lot. It's one of Paul's major theological ideas. We are in Christ. Verse 19, he'll say this. He says, by God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory. Where? In Christ Jesus. In Christ. To be in Christ means that what is his is now mine. What he has accomplished, he has accomplished on my behalf. I'm incorporated into who he is and what he has done. The riches of 
Jesus are now mine. And Paul understands this. He gets it. The source is not some sort of stoic, stiff upper lip. It's not some sort of um, weighing the scales of how, how much pleasure can I get. And it's definitely not some going inside to find myself. As popular as these may be, they don't work and you know it. If you're in here and you're not a Jesus follower or you are a Jesus follower, but you've been fooled by one of these, it doesn't work and you know it. So what does gospel contentment look like? We go to what's above to transform what's below and inside. See, only in the gospel, only in, with gospel contentment, do we, when we go to what's above, we see, and it's only in the Christian story, the one who was above emptying himself to come down to what's below, becoming the form of a servant on your behalf and on mine. Only in the Christian story does God step into the brokenness of your discontentment, your brokenness, and your pain, get it all over on him, on him, even death on a cross. He becomes nothing so you can have everything. He is emptied so you can be filled. He became poor so you could be rich in him. Do you see it? We go to what's above, and it transforms what's below and inside. And there's nothing else that offers anything like this. There's no other story like this. There's no other contentment like this. Notice it. He says, everything that was gained to me, it's nothing compared to knowing Jesus. Everything is garbage that I may gain Christ and be found where? In him. Again, it's all over the place in Paul. We go to him. Now, here's how we're going to close today. Uh, we got the, the Christmas lights up here. It's cold outside. I'm going to give us just a two, two slides worth, extended little passage from C.S. Lewis. It's from a, his chapter on hope, and it's got one of his most famous lines in it, but I didn't want to just give you the line. I wanted to give us some context. So settle in uh, for the next, you know, 60 seconds or so. I just want you to hear what he says. Just take it in. I think he says it so well. So let's hear his words. He says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. But aim at earth, and you will get neither. He says, we all have this desire, like Mark Twain said, we ache for something, but it's like we never can realize that he says, that's our want for heaven. And he says, when the real want for heaven is present in us, we often don't recognize it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, some trip, or first take some subject up in school that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Then he continues. He says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hungry, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. And hear him. Listen. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. 
Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for those earthly blessings, but on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself my desire for my true country. Isn't that beautiful? Gospel contentment, we go to what's above our true country. Paul's been saying it all over the place in Philippians. We behold Jesus who emptied himself taking the form of a servant. And we recognize that when he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, we are in Christ. All that you need, all you could desire is met in him. It transforms what's below and what's inside. The secret to lasting contentment, it's yours today. In Christ, if you take it. Let me pray. Father, we need you to impress upon us the hard work that it is to recognize where our priorities are off, where we've been seeking the wrong kind of contentment, where we've been fooled by the world and what it offers. And then we need you to remind us of what you've done in sending your son. So even right now, as we sing these songs, do that. So we might, like Paul, understand the secret, find our joy and our contentment in you. We love you, Jesus, and pray this in your name as our king. Amen. you stand with us as we respond in singing and worship this morning? Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. We the theme of heaven's praises robed in frail humanity. In our
situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Church, we learn this. We learn it in our lives time and time again. It's saying so clearly in scripture here that only he can satisfy us. And so we're going to end this Philippian series with a song that we wrote based out of this idea that only Christ, Christ alone can satisfy us. He can give what we give us what we need, what we even desire. And so church together, let's sing these words in worship this morning.
It's not a feeling. It's not something that we hope to uh, experience as some sort of uh, moment. It's a, a life oriented to something better, to something lasting. A life oriented to the story of what Jesus has done. We go to what's above to transform what's below and what's, and what's inside. That's where we find our true joy, lasting contentment. And it, it may take us some, some time this week to Look at our priorities. I'm going to challenge you to do that. You may need to reorient by looking at the story. And let me just give you a, a simple challenge this week. Maybe four or five days this week. Just take the letter of Philippians, read chapter one all the way to chapter four. It takes about 12 to 15 minutes. Do it four or five times this week. Just to remind yourself of the words that we just sang. Remind yourself of the story of what Jesus has done for us. Fellowship, would we be those kind of people? that have a buoyancy, not because of our strength, because of his. We can do all of this through the one who gives us strength. With that in mind, we go into this world with a better story. If you need prayer, right through those doors. I'll pray with you up those stairs. Communion, right through those doors. Take communion. Have a wonderful week of worship. See you next week. Fellowship Fayetteville, love you.